Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, Southbridge. My name is Scott Lear. I get the opportunity to serve as the lead pastor here at Southbridge, and I want to welcome you. And I know you're probably grabbing your coffee, getting the kids seated and coming in. We're going to jump right into the message this morning, so I want you to get ready. But maybe you're new and you're checking us out for the first time. If you would, would you just text us hello at the number below on your screen? And we'd love to connect with you, tell you some more information about our church and whatever information you want to share about yourself with us. We'd love that. And while you're gathering together, I just want to rejoice together as a church. You know, we talk about all the time that we are passionate about connecting the people to Jesus for life change. And we always celebrate life change. Well, last week was Easter. He is still risen. But as we were doing that gathering together last Easter, we not only had a bunch of people gather with us, lives were changed. Uh, We've had people contact us and tell us they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so I want us just as a church to take a moment right now and in your living room, just celebrate that God is at work. He's still moving, even though things are unique here. I told my, my wife after the service last week and started to get responses from people. I said, it's almost like when Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, you know, you intended to harm me to his brothers, but God intended it for good. It's like these things are happening around our world and, and Satan wants to destroy and I get lies are being taken, but God's working and he's still using even this difficult stuff to save people. He's saving many lives. And so we want to rejoice. The Bible says that, that when one sinner repents, that all of heaven rejoices. And so we want to rejoice. And if you're one of those people that made that decision, I just want to congratulate you, the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And if for some reason you haven't contacted us yet, I know some people have, if you would just text us, Jesus, just the word Jesus, to that number on the screen below, we've got some information we want to give you to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. And what we're going to do today is we're beginning a brand new sermon series. It's called Divine Invitations. And in this series, we want to ask ourselves over the next four weeks, what is God inviting you into during this season? Because if you look at the Bible, the Bible is really a book of invitations. From the beginning to the end, we see God inviting us in, inviting us into relationship with him, inviting us into his plan, inviting us into the plan he has specific for each one of our lives. Like you go to the beginning of the Bible and look in the book of Exodus, and you see a guy like Moses. There's a burning bush, and God says to him, Moses, Moses. He's inviting him. Moses says, here I am. Or you read the New Testament, and you see, see Jesus say, I want to make you to some fishermen. I want to make you fishers of men. Come, follow me. He says to all of us, anyone wants to follow me must come to me. Come after me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. It's an invitation to be a follower of his. You go to the end, the last chapter in the Bible, in Revelation, chapter 22. It says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It's an invitation. From beginning to end, the Bible is a book of invitations. And I want us to ask ourselves, what is God inviting us into as a church and individually over these next four weeks? Will you pray with me as we jump into the message this morning? Father, thank you that you are present. And while we're scattered, you are with each one of us. That you are Emmanuel, God with us. That you are with us in these moments. Be with us in our living rooms. Will you speak to hearts? Speak through my lips. Speak into our minds. Speak through your word. Have your spirit move. God, I pray specifically for RDU. God, I pray that you would transform our city as a result of this this pandemic. Would you do an amazing work? Would you take what's destroying, what's killing, will you redeem it and use it for your glory? God, will will you work around the nation, around the world? In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. We've all probably received an invitation before. Maybe it was an invitation to a birthday party. Maybe to a wedding. That's big business. Maybe it was an invitation just to, to go out on a date with somebody that you liked. Or maybe it was an invitation to your boss said, hey, let's go to dinner together. And you know, whenever you receive an invitation, it's exciting. But let me ask you this today. Have you ever received an invitation that was too good to be true? Like when you got it, you thought, this can't even be real right now. I remember about 12 years ago, uh, we were in the, the heat of having new babies, and we had just planted the church, and it was Christmas time. And my wife was putting together a Christmas gathering we were going to do. She used Evite to send out some invitations. But at the end of sending out the Evite invitations, she was invited to fill out a contest, an entry form for a contest, for a tropical vacation for two. And she filled it out. She forgot she filled it out. About six weeks later, she gets a phone call. It sounds a little fishy to her, and so when I get home from work, she says, Scott, I want to talk to you about something. Now, in that moment, I was thinking, well, it must be big news. What's happening? We've got two kids. Are we having another kid? Like, what are you going to tell me about right here? And she says, I got a call today from Evite, and they said, we've won a vacation, all-expenses-paid trip for two to Hawaii. I'm like, what? Did you enter? And she's like, yeah, I'd entered, but I wasn't sure if it was real. And she said, they're going to call us back later, and they want to get information from us. They want to get, you know, information, our credit cards. She mentioned credit card, and I was like, credit card? If it's all expenses paid, why do they want our credit card? It sounded too good to be true. Have you ever had an invitation that sounded too good to be true? As we're doing this series, I think about where we're at as a world. And there are a lot of people that are worn out. A lot of people living in fear. A lot of people with anxiety. In fact, I had some, some, a friend of mine that sent me an, an article from the New York Times where the author of the, an article in the New York Times had written to his readers and said, will you just send me in, what's your mental state? And I'm going to read you some quotes from his article. He quoted a college student from Pennsylvania that said, I'm sleeping far too much to feel as lethargic as I do. My future, which seemed so bright a few months ago as I anticipated graduating in May, now seems bleak and hopeless. Another college student said this, I spent days crying alone and feeling helpless as I've been stuck at my parents' house and I find myself, I find myself difficult to be around. A 65-year-old woman said this, I'm 65 and a single woman with no nearby family. My surviving sibling lives several hours away. Six months ago, my older brother died. My neighbors are not very friendly and not once has anyone asked if I needed anything. I cry a lot, which is my new normal. So to sum it up, I'm feeling totally alone in this crisis and hopeless. Another person wrote, I'm normally a very positive person, outgoing, happy, energetic, definitely a glass half full. However, lately I cannot get through a day without tears, often sobs. I'm terrified for myself and my family and everyone in the world. All the things I love to do, I'm now afraid to do. Some people have described what's happening in our world as an invisible stressor. There's just a stress that we're all experiencing and knowing that, and knowing the invitation we're going to look at in Scripture today, some people might feel like this is too good to be true, but I'm going to tell you it is. The invitation we're looking at today, as you ask yourself the question, what's God inviting me into, is in Matthew chapter 11. If you've got a copy of the Scriptures, I invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to focus in really just on, on three verses, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. But to give you the context of what's happening here is that Jesus has already been inviting people to follow him. You go all the way back to Matthew chapter 4, and he said the very first words when he was preaching is repent. Repent means that you're headed the wrong way. Stop. You're headed away from me. Turn back to me. And he began preaching that, and he calls some guys that are fishermen. He says, drop your nets. Come follow me. And people are responding to these invitations. 
Matthew chapter 5, he preaches one of the most famous sermons in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says some hard words. But ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount, you boil it down, he says, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Those are the most religious guys of the day. He says, your your hand causes you to sing, cut it off. Your eye causes you to sing, gouge it out. But ultimately, we need his righteousness. And he wants to do such spiritual transformation in our lives. It leads to gospel saturation in the world around us. And we get to chapter 11 of Matthew. We're at a point where some people are experiencing spiritual crisis. In fact, there's a guy, he's a cousin to Jesus. His name's John the Baptist. And if you didn't know how real and authentic the Bible is, you'd be shocked at the story that's told in Matthew 11. Because what happens in Matthew chapter 11 is that, that John's in a, he's in a difficult state. He's in isolation. And many of us know that isolation, it can be the devil's playground. Isolation, when we get alone, we don't tend to drift towards the truth. Our minds tend to go towards deception. Deception about other people, deception about God, deception about ourselves. And John the Baptist is in that moment. This guy who preached at one, at one point, he must increase, I must decrease. Behold, the Lamb of God, talking about Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world, then sends two of his friends to Jesus to ask the question, are you the one? Are you the Christ? And Jesus doesn't say yes. Jesus never ceases to miss an opportunity. Jesus instead says, and he's referring to an Old Testament verse in Isaiah 61, and he says, look at the ministry I'm doing. The blind receive sight. The good news is preached to the poor. The lame, they're being being able to walk. The, The lepers, those are the outcasts. He said, they're being healed. And he's saying, yes, I am the Christ, but he's pointing to his ministry. And then he goes on and he confronts some cities that have rejected him. And he says, the works that I did in, in, you, in you, Capernaum, if they had been done in Sodom, a notoriously wicked city, they would have repented. And, and then he goes into this prayer, a prayer that sets up his invitation. Look at it with me. In Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 25, he starts to pray. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, now what Jesus is saying here when he's praying is not, if you're smart, you can never come to faith in me. If that was true, then one of the smartest guys that existed at that time, the Apostle Paul, would have never come to faith in Jesus. What he's confronting here is their pride. As long as you're trusting in your own intelligence, you're never going to see the invitation I have for you. See, it's the humble That's why he said in Matthew chapter 5 when he starts the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's why when he describes the only place in the Bible where he describes his own heart, he says, I am humble, lowly of heart, he says in this passage. Look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, and look at what Jesus is saying about himself here. Before he gives this invitation... A lot of times what we want to know is, where's the invitation coming from? He's saying, I got the authority to give this invitation. He says, all things. That means all authority, all resources, all power, all ability, all knowledge, all glory, all blessing has been given to Jesus. So he's got the ability to back up this invitation. And here it is. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here Jesus gives one of the most famous invitations in all of the Bible. Come to me, 
if you're weary, if you're laboring, if you're burdened, if you've got a heavy burden in your life, and, and I'll give you rest for your soul, not just any rest, soul rest. And what Jesus does in this invitation is he answers the questions we naturally have. Like, think about when you get that birthday invitation or that wedding invitation. You want to see who's it from? Okay, now, do you know that person? Do you know this organization? And then, who's it to? Does it apply to me? What's it for? Like, where is this? Is it something I want to do? And something I want to be invited into? And, and then, how do I respond? Which is what we'll, we'll look at kind of as our outline as we walk back through this passage of Scripture is, who's it to? And the first point is this, the invitation it's to those who labor and are burdened. It's those who labor and are burdened. We already saw, saw who's not going to respond. The proud aren't going to respond. Because pride has a way of blinding our eyes. As we trust in ourselves and we seek our own glory. And The Bible says that we're actually opposing, that God opposes the proud, that we're an enemy. We're at war with God when we're functioning in our pride. So we can't see the invitation he's giving us. What's he inviting you into? But then you think about who he's speaking to here, and that's why the context is so important. Remember, John the Baptist sends his buddies. They say, are you the one? And then Jesus says back to him, and referencing an Old Testament passage of Scripture, yes, but the blind receive sight. Did he point to a blind guy? Were there blind people there? The lame walk? These are people that have the, the burdens of life, just like many of us do. These are people that are lonely, people that are diseased, People that are going through relational difficulties, have the pressures of their bills, and they're not sure how they're going to... He says, the poor, good news is preached to the poor. Do you think there were poor people there? Of course there were. But then Jesus, Jesus, in this context, knowing the context of that day where the religious leaders were, were heaping heavy burdens on people's lives, he's probably talking to people that are not only worn out from life, they're worn out from religion. He says later in, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4, talking about the religious leaders, he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So not only do you have people that are there that are, that are just going through life's difficulties, and they've got illnesses, and they've got struggles, just like we all do, but these are the kind of people that if you said to them, you know what, you need, you need to get God in your life. They'd hear religion, and then they would think, that, i got enough problems, why do I need that? Some of you may hear that. When you think about coming to Jesus, you think about religion. And some of you have been around religion like what Jesus is confronting here in the Bible. Where it was more about rules than it was about a relationship with him. There was more about you doing stuff and proving something to him and earning his love. And let me tell you something. God does not want a resume from you. He wants a relationship with you. But what some of you have experienced, and maybe you grew up in a background where it was, you know, they used the language of Christianity, but they almost acted like, like you had to be good enough for God to use you. Like God only uses clean vessels. Have you ever heard that? If you have, it sounds kind of true, right? Like God wants us to be holy. He wants to pursue him. But if God only used clean vessels, he wouldn't use any people. And how do you explain him taking somebody like Moses? He's a murderer. Or David, an adulterer. Or Paul, you guys persecuting the church. Or Peter, a doubter, a wimp, denying Jesus. Here's what God uses, broken people. That's who Jesus is speaking to here. And he gives us two words specifically as he's calling to them to make it clear who the invitation is going to. Two words in this passage. They're both participles. This isn't a grammar lesson, but let me tell you why that's important. The first one is all who labor. That's a present active participle. What that means is the people that are continuously doing work, and the idea here is a work to the point of exhaustion. The same word is used of Jesus in John chapter 4. 
when he's been traveling with his buddies and he gets to a spot that he's worked to the point of exhaustion. So it's not wrong. But here in our context with these religious leaders, they're working maybe even in the name of God. They're wearing themselves out trying to please God. And Jesus is going, the invitation is going out to you. Some of you listening today, that's to you. But not just those who labor. There's another participle. It says heavy laden. Those of you who are heavy laden. That's not a present active participle. And that one there is, is a perfect passive participle. And the idea there is not that they've done something, but something's been put on them. In the past, at some point, a burden has been laid on them. Let me give you a, a picture of what this word describes. It's kind of like, like we all carry a pack around in life. And I've got a backpack here. And maybe a suitcase or a purse or a satchel, depending on how cool you are. But we carry these, these packs around and then just by going through life, stuff happens, right? Like sometimes people mean to hurt us, sometimes people don't mean to hurt us, but they, just life happens. And so, so maybe you're going through life and, and you pick up some, some heavy things. I've got a stone here. Somebody says some harsh words to you. And it's, it's not like going to ruin you, but it goes in your bag and you can carry it around. But the reality is you carry this bag everywhere you go. So when you get up in the morning, you put the bag on and you carry it with you and you go to work and you go to work out and you go to your social gatherings and you do different things throughout life and you even go to church. And then you go back to bed and you rest and the next morning you get back up and you got your bag. And, and the weight itself isn't that bad. It's just the fact that you're always carrying it with you. And then other things happen throughout life. And sometimes they're bigger things. Sometimes they're smaller things. And sometimes it's relational. Sometimes you just got this burden of how am I going to pay my bills? Sometimes maybe abuse or something's happened in your life and before you know it the bag starts getting heavier and heavier and you're carrying it around and you're going and you're doing life and maybe you even go to church and maybe you go to the kind of church where Jesus is talking about these religious leaders were like where they're telling you you just you got to do more and, and you, you never quite measure up and if you want God to love you and if you really love him then you'll and you start laboring and you add the laboring to the burden and Eventually, it becomes exhaustion. It reminds me of a story that happens in John chapter 8, where Jesus is teaching. In fact, he's teaching at the temple, and there's all these people gathered around. And it says, while he's teaching, the religious leaders show up, the scribes and Pharisees. And they brought a woman, a woman who was caught in adultery. And listen, listen to what they say to Jesus in, in John chapter 8. It says in John chapter 8, and verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And then John tells us in verse 6, they said this to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. I love what Jesus does next. It says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. <laughs> what was he writing? I would love to know. Is he writing out the Ten Commandments? Is he doodling? Maybe Jesus was a doodler. Is he writing out their sins? We don't know. But he's writing on the ground, and then verse 7 says, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is, out, was, is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and maybe he started to doodle. But then John's real specific in what he says next. He says, They went away, but not all at once, one by one. And then it says, the oldest first. I think it's interesting that John even tells us that the oldest went first, and, and I wonder why. Is that because they were more aware of their sin? 
Maybe they had more sin. But as I try to put myself in the story and I try to imagine what it was like to be there that day, to be in the crowd or to be one of those men or, or to be that woman, I think about as those men walked away one by one and they dropped their stones that they brought to stone this woman. And you think about it, what must that have sounded like? Have you ever dropped a stone on the ground before? A big stone like this. If not, maybe, maybe later today you can go outside and drop it. And I, I want you to know it makes a noise when you drop it. Not quite like a stage, but on the ground, it's a thud. And I wonder what it was like for those men. Maybe for them to drop their stone was just they were confronted with their sin. But for that woman, what was it like for that woman? As she heard each man, they were ready to stone her at one moment. Release those stones, one at a time. The oldest first, and then the next. I imagine it was like taking burdens out of her bag and releasing that weight for her. Do you know what happens next in that passage? Once everybody's gone, and Jesus says, where is everybody? Did no one condemn you? She said, no. Then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. And that moment to be freed from all those burdens. So many of us carry burdens all through life. And so I was thinking about the burdens we carry this week. I made a list. It's not exhaustive. Your list might be different. But here's some of the things I think many of us are carrying regularly. We're burdened by our sin. We're burdened by the sins we've done and the guilt that we carry. We're burdened by the sins that have been done to us and sometimes the shame and, and the things, the marks that that leaves. We're burdened by work, by finances, by fear, anxiety, the unknown, unseen, unexpected, unwanted, burdened by religion, expectations, burdened by a lack of sleep, burdened by a lack of resources, burdened by too much, burdened by too much news, too much entertainment, too much information, too much responsibility, too much pain in the world, too much loss, burdened by unemployment, burdened by not having children, burdened by the responsibility of having children, burdened by the pursuit of dulling the pain in our lives that keeps leaving us empty, burdened by isolation, burdened by bills, burden of the new normal, burden of a fear that we'll never go back to our old normal, burden of cancer, the burden of unanswered questions, of guilt, real guilt, false guilt, the confusion between the two, burden of strife, burden of mental illness, burden of aging, burden of singleness, burden of marriage, the list could go on. Are you laboring? Are you burdened? If so, the invitation's to you. But what's the invitation for? Go back to the passage. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here the invitation is to come and rest. That God's giving. Did you see that? You don't purchase it. You don't earn it. It's not after a certain amount of being a good person. It's not after a while of doing good work. It's, it's a gift to you. I give you rest. Will you find rest? Different language there. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But rest is something I think we struggle with as a society. 
I think in general, many of us, we struggle to re- just the idea of rest. You think about it in the Bible. In the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, there's this pattern where God created. He, he made it, and it was good. And for six days, he made it, and it was good. On the sixth day, he made man, and it was good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. Have you ever thought about that from man's perspective? What's he resting from? The, the, he's created on the sixth day. He hadn't done anything yet. And then on the seventh day, God gives this gift of rest. He didn't earn that. He didn't do anything to get that. He's not even tired. He hasn't done any work yet. In fact, it's been said by some, the only thing that Adam had to, to celebrate on the first Sabbath was God and his creation. Rest is a gift that God gives us. But many of us struggle to receive the gift because for some of us, we don't even want to stop. I remember at our church one time before this pandemic, in fact, it was like three or four years ago, that a young woman in our church, she was leading worship that Sunday, and, and she quoted a, a famous verse. It said, be still and know that I am God. And then she started to share about it from her own life. And I got super convicted. Because she talked about, you know, be still. She, th- she thought it sounded almost humorous. As a, a, a mother of young kids, she said, if I stop, like if I'm still, they could hurt themselves. Like it could be dangerous. Much less is it laughable because all the things we have to do and all the places we have to go. But then she said that she was reading and, and she read that one of the translations of that verse could be cease striving. Stop trying to prove something. Trying to do. See, one of the reasons why some of us struggle to rest is because we don't believe the second part of that verse. You know what enables you to stop? Is that he is God. That he's in control of the world. You know, almost all of us sleep at night, whether it's a short time or a long time. At some point, physically, your body just can't go anymore and you have to stop. And guess what? God's still spinning the world. He's running all the ecosystems. People are awake on the other side of the planet. He's caring about the babies are being born. Plants are growing. Different things are happening. He's in charge of all that and he doesn't need you. But many of us struggle to rest because we struggle with not being God. Here's the reality. We're glory thieves. We want credit for being God. We don't say that, but we don't want to stop and acknowledge he's God because we want to be God in our own lives. And so we, we struggle to see striving. See, one of the things that happened to this pandemic is not that we've become stressed because there's so many things that we're learning are out of our control. It's, it's that there's so many things that are out of our control. We just haven't acknowledged it before. And we struggle to stop. You know, we sing a song as churches, and maybe your church sings it, our church sings it sometimes, it's Waymaker. And there, there's, a, there's a part in that song where it says that even when I don't see it, he's moving, that he's working, he never stops. And we sing that, and we're praising God, I don't want to take away from that, it's a great song, but many of us, if we are honest in our, in our hearts, what we should say is that when I don't see it, I'm helping, and I'm going to help him be God, and I never stop, oh, I never stop. I never stop working. And that's why we can't rest. But did you notice in this passage, it's not just to a stopping rest? There's another kind of rest mentioned here. It's a rest in verse 29 for our souls. How do you know if you need soul rest? Because we all know, we all know when we need physical rest. We, can, we all got to stop every once in a while and go to sleep or take a nap or take a break. Even when you're working for a little while, and just a little mental break. Physically, we need that. But how do you know when you need a break for your soul? It's not like we have a gauge. Like you think about in your car. We've all got gas gauges. And, you know, if your oil gets low, we'll probably get a gauge. The engine lights come on and things are going on. And I was driving with Shanna a couple months ago. We were driving through a neighborhood. And this light came on on the dashboard of my car. I didn't know what it was. It was these shapes, exclamation point in the middle. I thought exclamation point must mean it's important. And so I don't know anything about cars. But I got out. Nothing was smoking. Nothing was hanging out from underneath the end. You know, the tires seemed fine. And 
I said, go to the manual. Like, I don't want this thing blowing up on us. Like, what's going on here? Exclamation point. And I don't know why they don't just have a circle for the tire and a hubcap, but it was this shape with the exclamation point, and it meant that I had low tire pressure. It was a warning sign. What are the warning signs that you need soul rest? I've been reading this book by John Ortberg called Soul Keeping. And he says in it, he talks about soul fatigue. And he says there's some signs that our souls need rest. He said one of the signs is irritability. He says things seem to bother you more than they should. And then he gives an example. He says your spouse's gum chewing suddenly reveals to you a massive character flaw. <laughs> yeah, you're easily irritable. It's hard to make up your mind about even simple decisions. Impulses to eat and drink or spend or crave are harder to resist. In other words, you're more easily tempted. You're more likely to favor short-term gains in ways that leave you with high long-term costs. He gives some biblical examples in here. He says your judgment is suffering. Another sign, he says, you have less courage. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Some of us need soul rest. But, but did you see in the text that there were two different things that it said there in the passage that he gives us rest, but then we find rest for our souls? So, so what is it? Is he giving it, or do we find it? or Like, what happens? And here's the reality. Like I told you about that, that trip to Hawaii. We really did win it. Incredible. Like, it seemed too good to be true, but it was real. But when we first got on the plane, like, it seemed like it was going to be incredible. Like, the door closes. Somebody else has got our kids. And, like, all the stresses of life are outside of there. Except our flight was delayed that day. Now, the first day of our vacation, we spent traveling. When we got to our connection spot, we had missed that flight. They had to reroute us, put us on a different plane. We finally land in paradise. Seems like everything's going to be great, right? Like, we're there. They're paying for everything. It's incredible. But they lost our bags. And so we're out on the beach. And usually I wear shorts when we travel. I go really casual. And I've learned about traveling since. But when they lost our bags, we didn't have any bathroom supplies. We didn't have any clothes to sleep in. And so we're walking out on the beach in jeans because my wife told me it would be cold on the plane. So I'm wearing jeans. And I'm also cursing my wife in my heart, just to be really candid with you. And we're not resting. And we're not enjoying it. And you may think, well, you're in paradise. You're so ungrateful. I get it. Judge me if you'd want to. But we weren't enjoying it. Now, the gift that they gave us was really the trip. But we weren't finding rest. The next day, about 24 hours, get up the next morning, turn the underwear inside out, like go out the same clothes again. At one point, Shannon looked at me and she said, should we just go home? And I was like, back to those wild kids and all that responsibility? No! Now, we eventually enjoyed that vacation. But at the beginning, rest had been given, but we weren't finding it. See, God says here that he gives us rest, but you'll find rest for your soul. So how? How do we respond? That's the last part of this passage, the last part of our outline here. We respond by answering God's call. See, the invitation is to those who labor and are burdened. The invitation is for rest. How do we respond? We respond by answering God's call. Look back at the passage. It says, come. There's two things that are parts of, two parts to this invitation. Come is the first part. To me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take is the second part. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So the first part, come, like, how do you come? How do you come to Jesus? He's not physically walking this earth anymore. What does it mean to come to Jesus? I'm going to challenge you. It means the same thing it meant then. 
when he was walking on this earth, it didn't mean to physically, just everybody make an appointment with me, physically come. When he would say come in the scriptures, he was talking about trusting him. He was inviting into relationship with him. Coming to him here is to place our trust in him. Remember, he doesn't want your resume. He's not wanting a resume from you. He wants a relationship with you. And the way that happens is he, he recognizes why he came to this earth is that we have a problem. It's a sin problem. And we all have it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so he cured that sin problem when he went to the cross and shed his blood for our sins. But you've got to put your trust in him. That's coming to him. And when you come to him, you receive peace with God. Because before that, his wrath was coming against you. And that wrath was poured out on the cross of Christ. He absorbed the wrath of God so that you could have peace with God. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have peace of God in your life. And that's where you see this next part. He says, take. And so what he's talking about here is an action. He says, take my yoke. A yoke was an instrument of work. A yoke would be, it's a wooden harness that straps oftentimes two oxen together. And as they worked, they would be strapped together so they could work in unison with one another. And sometimes one was stronger and bigger and older and smarter. And it would lead the younger one it's an instrument of work. And remember who Jesus is speaking to here. At first, this almost sounds like harsh language. Like we think rest means stop. Like just don't do anything. But here he's calling us to work and to receive rest for our souls. Think about who he's talking to. It's people that are laboring, people that are heavy burdened, and he's calling us to more work. That seems harsh, like he's insensitive. But he says here, it's easy. That his, his yoke is easy, that it's light, and his burden is light here. That word for easy actually means well-fitted. It's tailor-made. Just like his calling for your life is unique to your life. He's got good works for you to walk in. Ephesians 2.10, he's prepared them from the beginning of time. And as you walk in those works, as you, do the, as you answer the call that he has for your life, even as you're doing the work, you receive soul rest. How does that happen? Well, I think there's two elements to this answer. And one, it's, it's made easier to show to you by reading another passage of Scripture. Uh, if, you, if you have your Bibles, go to 1 John, towards the back of the Bible. And in 1 John chapter 5, and verse 3, it says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. But He tells us to do some pretty tough stuff. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Your radical reconciliation, he calls for. Leave your gift at the altar and go be right with your brother. And he calls us some things that are hard to do. In fact, when you look at assignments in the scriptures, whether it's Moses leading a nation of complaining people, or it's Paul knowing that he's going to be persecuted, or it's John being boiled in oil, or it's Peter who gets crucified upside down, like these are not easy assignments. So how can you say my commandments are not burdensome? It's not that the circumstances are easy. He's not promising us an easy life. He goes to the motive level. He says, this is the love of God. You see, when your motive is to just do the right things, when your motive is to prove something, when your motive is to earn something, when your motive is for you to get the glory, that's going to wear you out. Even when you're doing stuff in God's name. Those who labor. But when your motive is love, you can do the same things. Like for me... My wife, we got four kids. Her car might need to be cleaned out. It always needs to be cleaned out. We got four kids. And if I'm just doing it because it's like, that thing will stink if I don't do it. That's a task. That's laborious. That's a, that's a weight. It's an obligation. But if I do it because I think, this will bless my wife. I love my wife. And I, it takes the weight off. Not only that, but when you look through the scriptures and 
This is where some people have a, a false view of who God is. As what you see is that God's always the one that's actually doing the work. It's why we're told to link up with him and this custom-made yoke for us, the work that he has for us, that we link up with him. And you know what? He actually empowers us to do the things he's commanded us to do. God's the one who's working for you. Oftentimes we have the idea of God that we work for him. That's all the false religions in the world. And some people in the name of Christianity heap a bunch of burdens on people's shoulders, tell them all the stuff they need to do for God, like they owe him something. Like God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your work. In fact, if you're the one doing all the work, you're the one getting all the glory. It's the giver who gets the glory. That's why God tells us throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, that he's working for us. You don't like that? Listen listen to the scriptures. Isaiah 64, verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Some translations say who works for those who wait for him. In the New Testament, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says that the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, says, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. See, he's working for us not because we're ultimate and he does our bidding. He's working for us because he gets the ultimate glory when he's the one doing the giving. We don't like it because we want credit because we're glory thieves. But you think about what happens in Scripture. Whenever God commands us to do something, he then empowers us to do that thing. I was preaching in Capernaum just before this pandemic shut the whole world down. And we had a group of folks from our church there. And in Capernaum, one of the miracles that took place is what I was preaching on. It was in Mark chapter 2. And there's this the long story, or the short version of the story is this four of this, this guy's buddies brings him to this house. They can't get in. He can't walk. He's on a mat. They lower him through the roof. And then at the end of the story, Jesus says to the guy, take your mat and walk. I said to our group, I said, you don't think that guy had tried that before? You don't think it ever crossed the guy's mind who's not able to walk, who has to have four people carry him on a mat? I should try to get up and walk. Why was it in that moment he could get up and walk, and before that moment he couldn't? Because in that moment, Jesus commanded him to, and what God commands, God empowers. When God commands you to do something, he empowers you to do it. Peter, come. The invitation to get out of the boat and to walk on water, and then God empowers Peter to do something none of us can do because God didn't command us to do it. When he tells the disciples, take this little kid's Lunchable, why not you feed 5,000 people with it? Because what I command, I'll empower you to do. See, the problem for many of us in our lives is we're doing stuff that we were never commanded to do. And we wonder why we're, we're laboring so hard and we've got all these burdens and we're spiritually exhausted. And he's saying, you come into the calling that I have for your life and you will find rest for your soul. I was reading a story this week about a guy, his name was Paul. And Paul was in a big business meeting. It was the biggest business meeting of his life with his whole team. And it went great. And he said, we came out of the building. It was in, it was in New York City. And as we came out of the building... We looked and it was rush hour and it was an un, un, like a foreign scene. There was a car, a cab that was sitting there empty, just waiting for people. And so we started to run towards it, my whole team. We wanted to get on the plane. We wanted to go back. I wanted to tell my wife and my boss how great the meeting went. But as we were running, we inadvertently hit this stand that had all these potatoes, all these vegetables on it, and we knocked it over. Most of my team didn't realize we had hit it, but I did. He said, I looked back and I saw these vegetables going everywhere and my team they're all standing up next to the cab he said Paul get in the car you're gonna miss your flight and he said go ahead of me and he went back in that moment and when he got there he saw that the woman that was in charge of the vegetable stand was blind and she was standing there and she was crying kind of silent tears coming out and 
He said, it's okay, it's okay. I started to pick up all the vegetables and put them on this, this cart, reorganized them all, took the spoiled ones off to the side. And he said, I put it back together. Are you okay? She said, yeah. And he took some money, took two bills out of his pocket and said, this should cover all the damages. And he started to walk away. And then she said, sir, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. Are you Jesus? I said, no, no. Why are you asking me that? He said, because when I realized my vegetables were all over the ground, I just started praying, Jesus, will you help me? I wonder, have you ever, has anyone ever mistaken you for Jesus? See, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we're living the life that he's called us to live, the spiritual transformation that leads to gospel saturation. He says that, that people will see our good deeds and not that they'll glorify us, not that they'll look at us, and we're glory thieves and we want that, but he says they'll glorify our Father who's in heaven. See, God's got a unique, a custom fit, a well-fitted calling for your life. What is it? See, in this moment, God speaks. He's got commands that apply to all of us, that you should repent, that you need to trust Him as Savior, that you've got to follow Him, that, that you, He wants you to be holy and you repent of sin. And, but He's got some custom-made things that He's got to speak into each one of our lives. What's His calling for you? If you're going to find soul rest, it doesn't mean you just stop doing stuff. It means you step into the things that He's calling you to do. Scott, are you, asking, are you saying I need to do, do more stuff? Are you saying I need to do less stuff? What I'm saying is you need to do the stuff that he's commanding of you. And that's the stuff. And so I want to ask us, I know you're in your living room right now, and normally if we were gathered together in this spot, I'd say everybody bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're going to have a time of response, and our elders will be available. And, and I want you right now, just like we were, if we were gathered together, to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask the Lord to speak specifically to our hearts right now. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go and do a time of worship. And you're going to find in that time of worship, we're intentionally going to keep the lights down on the worship team because we don't want your eyes on them and what they're doing and how they're singing or, or praising. But we want your eyes just to go to Jesus and you to continue to ask him, what do you want to do in my life? To have an encounter with him. Pastor Seth and I were talking as we were even planning this service. And one of the things he said to me, he said, I've been thinking to myself over and over. It's possible to see God in everything, but to miss him in anything. And we don't want you to miss today what God has for you. Will you join me in praying right now? Father, we come before you and I ask, I ask if there's anybody who doesn't know you as their Savior today, that today would be the day of salvation, that right now in this moment they would ask your son Jesus to save them from their sins. They would believe on you and call upon you to be their Savior. And if you do that today, would you just text Jesus to that number that I mentioned at the bottom of the screen? And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are watching some part of this church, some from all around the world, that you would speak into our hearts today. What is it that you've got custom fit for us? What is your calling for us today? What are you inviting us into that we can step into, that you're commanding, that you will empower, that will bring ultimately, even though we're doing work, will bring rest for our souls? Will you speak that to us right now? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.